I like to refer to the kingship of God because that's, that's a really biblical way of describing things. Unfortunately, it doesn't work very well for Americans because we don't like kings very much. And so, at the same time, we don't really know what a sovereign is. And I, I think that has had an impact upon American Christianity that we have such a man-centered, uh, no king over us uh, type of idea that when we read biblical descriptions of God as king, as sovereign, as ruler, as having utter freedom in his creation, we sort of struggle to have the proper parameters to, to put that in in our, in our thinking. But when you speak of the sovereignty of God, it really is the natural outworking of the fact that God is the creator of all things. If he is the maker and sustainer of all things, and there is nothing outside of him that constrains him, then he is completely free to accomplish all of his will. And the scriptures specifically say that. God does whatever he pleases in the heaven and on earth. It's, it's, it's sort of a given in scripture. Um, but even, I, I love how even pagan kings who have been struck down by God uh, because of their arrogance upon having their reason given back to them, Nebuchadnezzar specifically, uh, naturally recognize that God is sovereign. And they rhetorically ask the question, who can say to him, why have you done this? And who can stay his hand? This is, this is just simply the recognition of what the one true God is, is all about. It's a part of, of, of who he is and how he acts in his own creation. That's the sovereignty of God. Morning. Obviously, Pastor Bob's not here for reasons that we already talked about. And uh, so yesterday, Wendy reached out to me and was like, hey, would you be willing to, um, to do something for tomorrow? And my sleep-deprived, monster-driven brain said, took that and said, you mean write a full sermon? Yeah, sweet, let's do it. Which I finished at 1 a.m. yesterday. To th this morning, sorry. Um... So uh, I think I went a little bit overboard, so I'm trying to cut out as much as I did, as much as I can. So we're engaged in this series, The Year of God, in order to learn more about who our God truly is, and by doing this, to also learn more about who we are, how God created us, and how sin has twisted us out of our original shape, and how God is constantly at work to redeem and renew us out of that brokenness. This week, we are talking about the sovereignty of God, like we saw in that video. This refers to his kingship. And just like he said, we Americans tend to have a problem with that for obvious historical reasons. But we need to take a little bit more of a detailed look into how sin itself has twisted our understanding of God's sovereignty. There are two main ways. One is by convincing us that we are or ought to be in control. And two, by convincing us that he actually isn't quite as powerful or as good as he says he is. So the first way that sin has twisted God's sovereignty in our minds and leads us away from truth is by encouraging us to take the center stage of the narrative of our life and, and convince ourselves that this is natural the natural order of things, for us to be at the center. The result of this mindset is that when things don't go according to our plans, we start complaining. This driver in front of me is so slow. 
Why does work have to be so hard? There just aren't enough hours in the day. These kids don't let me get any time to myself. I'm so exhausted because I stayed up late last night to compensate for the fact that my kids don't give me any time to myself. That one's on you, sorry. We get stuck in a pit of complaining about the day's inconveniences, often so much that we totally miss the day's blessings, not because the inconveniences are all that unexpected or even that inconvenient, but just because we have allowed sin to implant the idea deep in our psyche that we are the main character in our lives. I have news for you. You're not the main character in your story. God is. There were some other people who made the same mistake in Scripture. It was Job and his three friends who came to comfort him in the wake of the grief of losing everything he once had in one cataclysmic day. And after 37 chapters of patiently enduring criticisms and poor explanations of his motivations, God's rebuke lasts three full chapters. I'm not going to read all three chapters for the sake of time, but I encourage you to check it out on your own. Starting in chapter, I think, 37 or 38? Yeah, 38. Um, yeah, go read that. It's quite intense. But the main point is that the created cannot say to the creator, why have you done this? The creator does with his creation what he will because whatever he wants to do with it is by default the best thing for it. As we see in Job, believe it or not, your comfort is not the ultimate purpose of the Lord of the universe. In a chapter of a book called Sunday Matters that Wendy shared with me in preparation for this morning, the author writes that sin distorts reality by encouraging us to make judgments about everything that happens in life according to whether it is good for me or bad for me. Under the effects of sin, our perspective becomes limited to only the self. The author of Sunday Matters goes on to say, God didn't design life between the already and the not yet to be comfortable. He designed it to be transformational. God is calling you away from an allegiance to your way and to a joyful surrender to his way. God is taking you through things that you would have never chosen in order, in order to produce in you things that you could never have achieved on your own. When we complain about our circumstances and blame God for our inconveniences, we are proving that we actually needed that moment to remind us that we cannot rely on our own strength, power, wealth, reputation, charisma, intelligence, cleverness, wisdom, or even good luck. Anything other than the sheer grace of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. We can only find rest in the complete sovereignty of God. Part of why we gather every Sunday is to remind ourselves that our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. And yet here we are, in this world, where the things wrong with life are sometimes much harder to cope with than mere inconveniences. 
We claim that God is infinite, outside of time, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, sovereign over all things, and we believe that he is good. Yet, there are still things that show us that the world is not as it should be. Cancer, accidents, tragedy, abuse, death. The first inclination that we have when we are presented with this problem is to make God out to be the one who does evil. If God is truly sovereign and evil things happen, then he would have to be commanding that evil things to happen, right? But this cannot be true for one primary reason. Because God would only command things that are within his will. And we know that because he is entirely good, his will is also good. Therefore, evil things cannot originate from the will of God. God has made it clear through the scriptures how he desires humans to act toward himself, toward nature, and toward each other. And therefore, if someone acts in a way that is out of line with what God has spoken in scripture, they are not doing the will of God. But they are acting contrary to it. But this leads us to another problem. If God is sovereign, how is it possible for humans to act in ways that are contrary to God's will? This might seem like a circular answer, but it's because God chose in his sovereignty to create humans with the ability to make our own choices. And in an act of his all-powerfulness, he continuously chooses not to impede our ability to make our own choices. The best way that I know to concisely explain this point is with an analogy. So let's say that a scientist creates a, uh, a sentient robot, which with today's AI technology is not actually that far-fetched of an idea, but the scientist programs this robot to love him and praise him all the time. Is that love and praise genuine? No because the robot is simply doing what it was programmed to do, nothing more. The AI might utilize the unlimited information contained on the internet to continuously come up with new and creative ways of expressing love and praise to its creator, but that doesn't make it genuine. It's just a fabrication, and the robot doesn't have a choice. It simply carries out its programming. God didn't make robots. He made humans. He made people that bear his image for the express purpose of having a mutually loving relationship with them, knowing that by doing this, these image bearers would have the choice, the free choice, to not love him. And this goes even deeper when you realize that since God is all-knowing and outside of time, he would also know full well that humans would, in fact, disobey him and stop loving him. Before he even spoke the words, let there be light, he knew that he was initiating a series of events that because of his own love and his own character of justice and goodness would inevitably lead to his own humiliation and death on a cross and still chose to do it anyway. Why? Because he loves us. Amen. And he wants so deeply for us to love him in return. So, We've established that God does not ordain evil, but he does allow evil to happen 
because he chose to create beings with free will. But that still doesn't explain how God is still in complete control. If people are able to do things that God doesn't want them to do, then he must not be in complete control. But I think here we're missing the point that we made earlier, that we cannot categorize the things that happen to us in terms of good and bad based on whether or not they make us comfortable. What makes something good or bad is whether or not it aligns with God's will, period. For this, I need to turn to another analogy, which will only take us so far, but it gets us pretty close to the mark. Imagine that God is like a sculptor. This sculptor works with marble. He starts with a simple block of marble, which is beautiful in its own right, just the way that it is, but it's dead. It doesn't resemble anything. What the sculptor wants is to glorify himself by transforming the block of marble into his own image and displaying it proudly to the world. And in order to do that, he picks up a hammer and he picks up a chisel and he starts taking chunks out of the marble. The sculptor has in his mind a design, an intended purpose, a size, a shape, a pose that he wants the sculpture to have when he is finished with it, and he has not told this plan to anyone outside of the fact that he wants the sculpture to represent himself. Depending on what his intended shape and purpose of the finished product, he might need to take more drastic measures than a hammer and chisel, removing so much of the block that it's not even close to the same size as it was when he started. Now also imagine this, as the sculptor is working, there are some observers who look on and make comments about what he's doing. With every stroke of his hammer and chisel, they whisper under their breath, ooh, oh, he shouldn't have chiseled there. Shouldn't, shouldn't he have left that part on? I mean, ooh, he's really messing this one up. Still, some others in the crowd shout at him and hurl insults. What are you doing? You're ruining it. I can't believe you would destroy a perfectly good piece of marble like that. You obviously have no idea what you're doing. But none of these people know his plan for the sculpture. They have no idea the image that he is working toward. They are not in a place to make such a judgment about his work. Now, this is where the analogy breaks down. But let's imagine that this, sculpture, this sculptor is also all-knowing. And he already knows all of the things that the onlookers are going to say or do in response to his work as he is doing it, and he makes a plan to actually use that and make a spectacle out of it. So he invites the hecklers to come, if they know so well what the sculpture should look like, to take the hammer and the chisel and take a few chunks out of the block. Or to even break the marble in some other way. But the sculptor already knows all of the damage that the crowd will inflict on the marble. He has already accounted for that in his plan, in the design that only he knows. So while every bit of damage done by the crowd is inherently wrong because they are not the sculptor and they are deliberately trying to ruin the sculptor's plans, they are unable to do so. Because when they have done their worst, the sculptor simply picks up where he left off and incorporates all of that damage done by the onlookers into a masterpiece that astounds the crowd and silences their jeers. 
This is not a perfect analogy, but it is as close as I can get in plain terms to how God works. God is powerful enough and indeed has a track record all throughout Scripture of using even the most evil things that happen in the world, whether natural disasters, acts of Satan, or acts of human violence for his own good purposes in a way that confounds the evil forces that did them, all the while promising punishment for the people that committed the evil acts in the first place. The primary piece of evidence for this? The cross. We already know that from the moment God chose to create humans in his image with free will, he knew they would betray him and eventually he would have to die on a cross in order to save them. But he had already accounted for this. He had counted the cost. He was willing to pay it because his plan was even greater. Our God is so powerful that he was able to take the single worst, most evil event in the course of history, the humiliation and death of the most glorious being in the universe at the hands of his own creation, and with the resurrection completely flipped it on its head and turned it into the single greatest good thing that has ever been done to date. And just think, we haven't even been able to witness his second coming and the complete renewal of all things. If God can do that with his own death, what can he do with your story? I'll tell you. He can use that addiction that you've been hiding, the shame you carry, and the slavery that you live in to show you and everyone around you what true freedom in Christ looks like. And he can use it to teach you about the radical, continuous, over and over and over again nature of his grace. He can use that illness that you have to show you just how fickle our health is and just how completely dependent on him we are for sustaining us. And he can use it to show others that joy in the midst of hardship is possible because we have a greater hope than the hope that other people place in their frantic efforts to prolong their youthful glow and vigor. He can use that untimely death in your family to sober you, reminding you that life is fleeting, that there's more to life than just working hard, and there's more to life than trying to make yourself as comfortable as possible, or to remind you of the fact that this life is not all there is. Death and the sorrow and grief we experience in its wake is just another reminder that we were created for a world where death does not exist. The list could go on and on and on, but the point is, if an evil thing exists, God has a plan for how he is going to redeem it. Whether in this life or when he returns, rest assured that all things will be set right. Does that make the evil things any less evil or lessen the impact that they have on our lives? No. No, it doesn't. Sinful deeds and sinful actions will always be evil and sinful. The sovereignty of God does not absolve us of the consequences of our own evil actions or doesn't even necessarily make us feel better when people mistreat us. But the fact remains that our God has the final victory. 
signed and sealed with his own death and resurrection. We don't have to fear anything that this world can throw at us because we know that anything we go through can be used by God to make us look more like himself and to accomplish God's ultimate goal, ultimate purpose for his creation. There's a song by an artist named Benjamin William Hastings called Eden which I think sums up this message perfectly. While we don't have time to sing it together, I think it's poetic and applicable enough for me to simply read it to you. Oh, Eden's tree, the choice within their hands as the serpent whispered from beneath, where your grace exceeds the sum of all our lack, for I am Adam and I am Eve. But isn't it just like you to turn it all around for good? Like only you could, like only you would. You turn it all around for good. And when you do, you do it so it's done for good. Like only you could, like only you would, you turn it all around for good. Oh, Calvary's tree, with nails in your hands, and laughter swept the crowds beneath, where your grace exceeds the sum of all our lack. For I'm a thief upon a tree. But isn't it just like you, to turn it all around for good? Like only you could, like only you would, you turn it all around for good. And when you do, you do it so it's done for good. Like only you could, like only you would, you turn it all around for good. Isn't it just like you? Oh, the vast extent of my regrets and all my deepest fears were buried in a garden where you wept in blood and tears. For you climbed a hill not yours to climb. They thought your fate was sealed, but the serpent tried to take you down, but he only bruised your heel. See, the empty grave is overgrown, and the earth begins to heal. For the enemy is overthrown, and the darkness finally yields. So I don't owe a thing to death, should ever he appear. For death can only borrow breath, no longer can he steal. Isn't it just like you, to turn it all around for good? Like only you could, like only you would. You turn it all around for good, and when you do, you do it so it's done for good. Like only you could, like only you would. You turn it all around for good. Isn't it just like you? Isn't it just like you? You're making all things new, and you won't stop until it's done. O tree of life, there's hope in every branch and the serpent's nowhere to be seen. Where your grace completes the sum of all our lack. For I am Adam, I am Eve, and Eden is my eternity. People of God, if God is sovereign, and if God is good, then we have nothing to fear. If we are one with God in Christ, if our faith rests on God's grace through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross and the promise of his return, rest assured that we will see 
victory. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day. I thank you for the opportunity to come here and worship you and acknowledge that you are the king. That we have no claim of control, we have no claim of power, and it's best that way. Your will is best. Lord, give us the faith that we need to submit ourselves to your will, to serve you and love you, knowing that you will only do that which is good for those who love you and for the, the benefit of your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.